Hey, thank you, Pastor Richard. Well, hey, good morning and uh, Merry Christmas to you. If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew today, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 16. It's page 962 in that blue print Bible. Uh, so uh, if you don't have your Bible here, remember to bring your Bible next week and uh, use that blue hardback Bible this morning, page 962, Matthew 5. 14 through 16. Isn't that beautiful hearing those babies cry? Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained praise. I love that. Amen. Uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16 this morning. And if you would, uh, follow along as I read to you out of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord to us. Matthew chapter 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together as God's beloved people. Uh, Father, we love you, and we praise you that you sent forth your Son into our dark world, that the light of the gospel would shine in our hearts. Uh, Father, would we help people find their way back to you? And Lord, would we individually, myself included, take the next step in our discipleship? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we start into our Advent series, I just need to, first of all, thank you for going through the whole series with me. So if you were a part of our church for the last few months, you'll know that over the last 30-odd weeks, you know, 39 weeks or so, give or take a week, we went through the whole Old Testament, right? Who was a part of that? Raise your hand if you can remember all the way back several months ago. Great job. I'm very proud of you. We went through the whole Old Testament, one book of the Old Testament per week through the entire Old Testament. We just finished. Uh, but I want to remind you that the reason that we did that, the reason we went through the whole Old Testament, was so that you and I would become better disciples of Jesus. That was why we did it. We didn't go through it just so that we would learn more about the Bible, although that's a great goal in life to have, and I've dedicated a lot of my life to learning more about the Bible. But the goal of learning, especially studying God's Word, is so that we would be better disciples of Jesus. And we can never lose sight of that. And, you know, somebody confessed to me several years ago, a great godly man came to me and he said, you know what he told me? He said, no one's ever explained to me what it means to be a disciple. What is discipleship? You know, sometimes in the church we can use churchy words, you know, like loving on someone. Don't ever say that. Just as, just as a side note, if you're a Christian and you've ever said, I just need to love on that person, people who aren't Christians don't talk like that. It weirds them out, y'all, right? And when we say words like glorification and sanctification and justification and propitiation, right, we can confuse people just by our language. Well, sometimes even the best of us you know, we go through and we, we say words like disciple, and we're like, what does that actually mean? What does discipleship mean? Well, it, in Greek, it just means, it's mathetes in Greek. It means a learner or a follower or a pupil. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, or uh, if you're like Soren Kierkegaard and you wouldn't say you're a Christian, you would say you want to be a Christian. <laughs> you would say, I want to follow Jesus. What you mean is, I am wanting to learn the way of life that Jesus makes possible. I want to be a part of his kingdom. I'm striving to learn the way of life, right? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? 
And what we mean by that is he shows us the way to have true life. So if you're a disciple, it means you're trying to learn the way that Jesus operates in this world. Right? And so, really, you know, this Advent, I would suggest to you that this is a wonderful opportunity, not just to give gifts to other people uh, or sing Christmas carols. It's actually an opportunity for you and I to take the next step in our discipleship journey, right? Because, uh, you know, the smartest people you know, you know, think about the smartest person you know. Is that person, did they arrive or are they constantly learning? Right? Anyone here think you're constantly learning, even if you've arrived, even if you got the degrees? So, guess what? You're all the smart people in the room, right? And the super smart people, you know, you know that you're always, always learning. There's always something more. So the same thing is true when it comes to following Jesus, right? We are always disciples on the path. Well, you know, I know I say all that, but then you may be thinking, well, if it's about following Jesus, you did just spend like 40-odd weeks going through the Old Testament, Dustin, so it sounds like education and learning is important, and I would certainly say that, but as we get done, you know, with the Old Testament and we move into Advent, I just want to throw a thought out there for you to consider, uh, which is, uh, it's very easy for religious people, and I'm talking to a group of people who are primarily religious people, uh, it's very easy as religious people to become educated beyond our discipleship. Okay, let me say it another way. It's possible for you and I to know more about the Bible than we actually apply the Bible to our lives, right? So who, if you've ever been on a mission trip, uh, you'll probably run across somebody who doesn't know as much of the Bible than you, right? Because if you go on a mission trip, you probably are going on, on behalf of a church, and you've probably taken your faith seriously, and you've probably spent a lot of your time studying the Bible, and you may be exposed to somebody from another culture where maybe they don't have as much time to just go to Bible studies and read all day long. But you realize, and if you've been on those mission trips, you've probably met people whose faith seems more real than your faith. Anyone ever had that experience? Someone who knows less about the Bible seems to apply the Bible's principles better than we do. Well, that's an example of somebody who's educated at this level, but their obedience or their discipleship seems to lag. So I guess if that describes you, if you studied the Bible, if you know a lot about it, you know, has your discipleship caught up with your education? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for educating. I mean, that's why I just taught through the whole Old Testament, right? I believe in teaching God's Word and knowing it. But when we think about studying Scripture or coming around education, learning about the Lord, right, um, in sort of in an intellectual way, uh, you know, to me, knowing the Bible is like having your gas tank filled. You know what my favorite thing about moving to Oregon was? You know what it was? Besides all you lovely people, you know what it was? I don't, I don't have to pump my gas anymore. I feel like a boss. I'm like, hello, I want it filled all the way. You know, you know, you can go to Costco. It is like a wonderful luxury not to pump your gas. You know, I was sort of like a red-blooded American when I moved here, and I was like, I'm going to pump my own gas. Three years into it, I'm like, all right, this is pretty sweet. I'm not going to lie. I'm sort of into this, right? But why do you pump gas, or why do you put gas in your car? Is it just so that your car has gas in it? What happened? Okay, here's a trivia question for somebody who owns a vintage car. What if you fill up your tank all the way, but you never drive your old car? What happens? Is that good or bad for your car to have a full tank that you never use? It's actually bad for your car, right? You're supposed to have gas so that you will use it so that you'll go on an adventure, right? I mean, that's why you put gas in the tank. 
Well, in the same way, the reason you and I imbibe the word, the reason you and I study the word, the reason you and I went through the whole Old Testament is not so that the gas would just sit in your tank. The reason you have a full tank is so you can go where? To Costco. Yeah, very good. No, you go on an adventure of a lifetime, right? That's what a full tank means, the adventure of a lifetime, right? And so when we study Scripture, we end with the whole series. Friends, we filled our tanks so that we would grow as better disciples, that we would take the next step. And that applies to me, and it applies to everybody in this room. And if you're not a disciple yet, if you're at level zero, well, guess what the next step of your discipleship is? To become a disciple, to confess Jesus, to join the family, to be a part of the kingdom, and take that first step. So, all right, so I know I'm talking to educated religious people, or religiously educated people, I guess I should say. So let me, um, let me do some trivia. I love trivia, and I'm talking to religiously educated people. So let's see if you can figure this trivia out. It's also Bible trivia, you know. I mean, you did walk into a church this morning, so the trivia is going to be from the Bible. So uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. Um, feel free to shout out the answer. Um, or if you're watching online, I guess you can do that too, although that maybe seems weird to you. Who, who gave the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus. All right, very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm going easy, right? I'm giving you a Sunday school answer, right? Where Jesus is the right answer. Who's the light of the world? Nope. Nope. Who's the light of the world? Hmm. Kind of a hard question. Well, if you study the Bible, right, you may remember that one of the great I am sayings of Jesus in John 8, 12 is Jesus stands up and he says what? I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me shall walk in the light. Look at your passage this morning in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest discourse in human history, uh, rivals Moses' giving of the law in the plains of Moab. The new Moses, Jesus, sits down on a mountain, and he begins teaching. But look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. What does Jesus say? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And, and look at the broader context. Look at verse 13, just right above that. You are the salt of the earth. Isn't that fascinating that when Jesus gathers a group of people, and he sits down to teach. He's giving us an alternative way of life. He's showing us what it means to be his disciple. You know what it means to be his disciple? It means to live out the things that he's teaching right here. It means to own them with our heart, to understand them with our mind, and to live them out with our hands. And he says, such is the kingdom of God. I am the king. These are my citizens. They are the light of the world. And uh, Duke, Duke Divinity Professor Stanley Hauerwas, writing on the Sermon on the Mount, he points out something just that just is so profound. Uh, Hauerwas says that the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of requirements for us to check off. It is rather Jesus speaking into existence an alternative group of people, the church, who embody all of these things. Now, think about it this way. When, when, who, who's ever had a kid? Have you ever had a kid? It's amazing. It's a, I, I love having kids, as you all know. I, we just can't stop. 
When, the moment you have a kid, who remembers back when you first saw your child, held your child? In that moment, you became what? You became a parent. You were a parent. Now, parents do good things, and if you don't know what a good parent does, talk to Janet Christian and she'll set you straight. But in that moment, you are a parent. Now, you have some things to live up to, but you already are what you have, has become your reality. When you become a disciple, you are the light of the world. Jesus doesn't say, strive to be the light of the world, strive to be a good church, strive to be a faithful person. What does he, what does he say? He says, you are the light. Now the question is, are you shining brightly or not? Because you are. You are the light of the world. You are the salt. Interesting. So Jesus says he is the light, but also that we are the light. And so what does that exactly mean? How are we the light of the world? Well, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. The next image he gives is he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, what's, uh, you know, Jesus uh, was an Israelite. He was Jewish. What's every Jewish person's favorite city on a hill? Jerusalem. What mountain is it on? Mount Zion. And if you read the Psalms, you'll know that they always go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you now are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You are the place where the light of God emanates throughout the world. He's speaking this into existence. So what does it mean that you and I are the light of the world? Well, this may not be the image in your mind that you're thinking of, but we really live out of, the, of our metaphors, right? Have you ever heard that phrase? We live out of our metaphors, right? So if you, if you believe you know, that you are the light of the world, that's going to shape how you make decisions, right? Uh, so look at this image right here. Isn't this a lovely, like, I, I talked to TJ about it a few months ago. I said, give me like a really cool Thomas Kincaid-like picture of our church. And uh, this is what TJ came up with. Uh, great job, TJ. And, you know, we're, and thank you to the deacons, by the way, for doing a great job with the lanterns. Uh, the theme this Advent is light and lighting the way, as you can tell. Uh, but if you look in this picture, is it daytime or nighttime? It's nighttime. And I think that's important because when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, I think what we're supposed to understand is what that means is we live in a dark world. I know sometimes when I say light, we're thinking happy, sunny, but I actually think this is truer to the image of what the church is. We are in a dark world, and we are meant to be an alternative group of people that are shining brightly, that on one hand is going to annoy people. I mean, if you live out your Christian faith, friend, you're going to annoy people. There's going to, as Tim Keller says, there's going to be something repulsive about you. But at the same time, there's going to be something really beautiful and attractive about you if you live out of the gospel, right? Um, you know, cheese, you know, cheese, you know, like good cheese, you know, you know, have you ever had, have you ever, have you ever had a charcuterie board? Did I say that right? I love these things. You've probably heard me talk about it before. It's very classy. It's the cool thing to do next Thanksgiving. I read that online. But, you know, the nicer the cheese, what happens? It's stinky. The stinkier the cheese, right? You ever heard, you know, there's cheese that's called angel's feet, right? You ever heard that? It smells like the feet of angels. It's a little stinky, but it's got something to it, right? That's what we are as, as Christians. We're like odorous cheese, right? 
We're like the light shining in the darkness. Well, what does it mean that you and I live in a dark world? Well, look down at Matthew chapter 5. So if you, if you know the gospel of Matthew, uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, this will all be in red. Anybody have a red-letter Bible? Uh, I don't, but if you do, you'll notice this more. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is the Sermon on the Mount, that greatest discourse. And basically, uh, I, I love what D.A. Carson, uh, Dr. Carson, describes the Sermon on the Mount as. He says the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's confrontation with the world. Is Jesus sitting down to confront the world, to confront a dark world? So what does he, he mean by that? Well, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you just look at it sort of section by section, and let's run through it real fast. Look at, starting in verse 17, this section, Jesus confronts religious hypocrisy from people who are religiously educated. You would know them as the Pharisees very well educated, very bad in discipleship. Jesus confronts a world of anger. He confronts a world of lust. He confronts a world of callousness towards spouses, a world where no one's word means anything, a world where people are cruel to each other and they oppress the poor, a world that's full of need, a world where people are anxious about everything from their diets to their food to their clothes a world where people judge each other, a world where people don't ask God, even though God stands ready to bless those who seek him. Jesus describes a dark world where many people claim to know God, but when they die, Jesus says that when they are confronted with the truth, he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, it's a great source of anxiety in my life to think how many people who are listening to me will have that experience when they die. And then Jesus finishes it in saying that many people in this dark world build their houses on foundations of shifting sand, and their houses are going to collapse in on themselves. So this is Jesus' confrontation with this dark world. In the midst of this dark world shining brightly is this alternative group of people who are reflecting his light. And this group of people does all the opposite things. Instead of religious hypocrisy, they have religious sincerity. They're marked by humility. Uh, instead of anger, they know how to reconcile deep differences. Instead of lust, they know how to honor people. Instead of callousness towards their spouses, they remain faithful to their vows. Their word means a lot. Their yes is their yes. Their no is their no. They don't take advantage of other people. In fact, they are willing to be taken advantage of. They turn the other cheek. They walk the extra mile. It's a world where they meet people's needs, a world where an alternative group of people in the midst of a sea of anxiety about everything, it's like they're floating on a boat of peace. They go over the wave and they make it through because they're not anxious about their clothes or their diets or their future because they seek a different kingdom. They don't judge other people mostly because they know who they really are on the inside. And they are a group of people who seek after God, knowing that he will give them whatever they ask if they seek it in truth. And of course, Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount saying, this is a group of people who build their houses on the foundation of the rock of his teachings. This is Jesus' confrontation with the world. Another way of saying all of this is Jesus is speaking into existence a people of light in a dark world. 
And when Jesus sits down on the mountain, he is giving you an invitation. Are you going to join his kingdom and his community of light? Or are you going to just operate like the rest of the world? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you've decided you know, to follow Jesus, um, you probably say, yes, I want to be a part of that kingdom. So how does that actually get fleshed out? Well, you know, our church is um, trying to instill sort of an explanation or a list of things in discipleship that's an easy mnemonic device. And we're calling them the steps of discipleship. And so really, I'm just going to walk through those with you this morning and give you some examples of how you could take the next step in your discipleship. But the beautiful thing is there is an application point for everybody in this room, whether you are five or you are 95, because we all are learners. We never graduate from the school of Jesus, right? We're always learning more and always having to apply more. So what's the first step? Well, the first step is gospel teaching. So if you want to have an outline, you can write this down. Or cheat code, if you don't want to write it down, this is all in the bulletin. The first step in discipleship is being exposed to gospel teaching. Talk to any Christian in this room, and I can promise you that almost all of them will say that they became a Christian. They decided Jesus was worth it because they were exposed to gospel teaching. There was some sermon, there was some book, there was some person who explained to them what the gospel was, and as soon as they got it, they started imbibing and taking in gospel teaching, teaching from the Bible, right? If you want to grow sheep to be strong sheep, what do you feed them? Sheep food. What is sheep food? I don't know. Somebody knows. Grass? That means something different in Oregon, as I found out. I'm not going to tell people to consume more grass. If you want to grow a Christian, you feed them God's Word. If you want to grow sheep, feed them sheep food. If you want to separate the sheep from the goats, you know what else you do? You only offer sheep food. And the goats sort of go away because they don't, they don't want sheep food. So right there, gospel teaching. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is this big term, and uh, I love the way of thinking about the gospel. The gospel is not just a message. It's also a way of life. You know, the gospel is used all throughout Scripture to describe multiple things at the same time. But essentially, the gospel goes something like this. Uh, let's see if you've learned this yet. Uh, the message of the gospel is two things. Number one, cheer up. You're worse than you think. And so am I. You know, Jesus says, repent. Turn from your sins. Confess your sins. We're worse than we think. I mean, this is what the apostles intuitively understood when they were around Jesus. What does Peter say when Jesus says, follow me? What does Peter initially say? He falls down. He says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Cheer up. You're worse than you think, and so am I. We have to repent of our sin. We have to acknowledge that instead of walking in the light, you know what really marks us most of the time is anger, grudges, lust, not holding to our word, retaliating, hating our enemies, uh, being anxious about everything, laying up treasures in this life instead of heaven. We resemble the world. And so repentance means turning away from the dark to step into the light. It means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and the Savior of sinners, to put our hope in Him. And then, as soon as you confess Jesus as Lord, what do the apostles say to do next? Let's see if, how well educated you are. Acts chapter 2, 
you will receive the Holy Spirit when you are what? Baptized. Be baptized. And then, of course, the rest of our life is taking up our cross and following him, taking those next steps of discipleship, right? So, you know, so uh, really, you know, this is what it means to understand the gospels, living this life with a cross on our backs, following Jesus all the days of our lives, right? This is the, what we get from the teachings of the Bible. This is the gospel. And of course, you know, the next step then is, well, what do we do next? If you say, well, I've already sort of done that. I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm trying to follow him. Okay, well, what do I do now? Well, what I would suggest to you if you read the, um, the Sermon on the Mount is you'll find that one of the key steps that a disciple makes in their journey of faith to get through life is they spend daily time with God one-on-one. Look at Matthew chapter 6. In Jesus's, um, you know, uh, manifesto on what it means to be a child of God, he starts talking about prayer. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says these words. This is Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Once you've got a steady diet of gospel teaching, I think the very next step that begins tomorrow morning when you wake up is to spend time with your Father. Time with your Father. You know how people learn we have education all wrong in a lot of ways. Um, what's, the, uh, what's the way that people learn languages now? The yellow computer program? What's that called? Rosetta Stone. Yeah, they've, they've fixed how we learn languages. You know, um, anyone ever taken Spanish in high school? Raise your hand. Yeah. Anybody remember it? No. <laughs> you know why? You only learn un poquito because that's not how you learn a language. How do you learn a language? Immersion and imitation. Immersion, imitation. You want to grow a soul? You want to grow your kids' souls? Immersion and imitation. It's not what you teach them intellectually. That's a part of it. You know that you can teach them the Bible, but you know what? What do kids learn? Is it what you say or what you do? It's what you do. Because we learn by immersion and imitation. What does Paul say? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me. Think about that. That's Paul saying the way that you learn to follow Jesus is you look to a more godly example. And Paul, St. Paul has the audacity to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You learn by immersion and imitation. So the way that you learn how to interact with God is you imitate people who have learned how to do this. You follow their example of life, and then you immerse yourselves into it. And so the only way you're going to know God as your father, I can talk to you all day long and you can listen to all the sermons you want on the fatherhood of God, but until you immerse yourself in the fellowship of the father in prayer, it's all going to be up here and it's never going to be here and it's never really going to make a difference out here. How do you know God is your father? You immerse yourself in his presence. Jesus says it this way, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father will reward you. What a wonderful promise. Well, the next step of our discipleship, I guess if I had to put a title to it, is I would say daily time with God, one-on-one. 
And if you don't know how to do that, our church has an actual devotional that's available to you right now. It's called the Ephraim Co-op. We started it about 15 months ago. We've read through the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. And every day there is a prayer, uh, there is a song, and there are scripture readings. And there's an opportunity then to journal what is going on in your life and then surrender it to the Lord. It's a wonderful, simple a devotional option, and we, we patterned it after what Christians have done for thousands of years. Uh, you know, technically the term is called the daily office, but the idea is spending time with God. And if you join in the Ephraim Co-op, there's print versions of it on the welcome table, and it's on our church app. If you read it this week, guess what we're going to read through? The Sermon on the Mount. But here's the thing, you learn the Sermon on the Mount not just by reading it, but by what? immersing yourselves in it and trying to imitate people who have done this well. That's how you learn. That's how you're teaching your kids. That's what you're teaching your kids, right? Immersion, imitation. Um, you know, this whole idea about habits has been fascinating. It's actually what I'm doing my uh, dissertation on because I've, I've noticed in my life that there is a powerful tool that is shaping my, my moral imagination more than I thought possible. And you know what it is? It's about this big. It's a cell phone. And it's designed to become habitual, right? And uh, you can read up all about habits. There's a wonderful book, Atomic Habits, or The Power of Habit. And all these people are realizing that certain things become patterns, neurological patterns in our brain that just become the thing that we do all of the time, right? Which is why you get on your phone and you just keep what? Scrolling, scrolling, never ending, right? Because you've taught yourself that is a habit. Well, you know, in, in the face of this, uh, there's a great Christian author who has written a new book called Habits of the Household. One of our discipleship groups is going to be reading it next semester. Uh, but he talks about having a different rule of life. And uh, one of his first rules uh, that other people are discovering is one of the easiest habits to make that becomes a new neurological pathway that changes your habits is not to look at your phone first thing in the morning. It's to do what? Go to Scripture first. Yeah, that's his first rule. Uh, uh, Tish Warren, Har Harrison Warren, is an Anglican priest, called, and she wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And uh, in, that store, in that book, she talks about that was the first thing that she did to change her life, was instead of going to her phone, she went to Scripture first. And all that is, is it's just a simple habit. And of course, that shapes the rest of your life, right? Your habits shape who you are. I think about 80% of our lives are habitual, right? You wake up about the same time, in the morning, you make coffee in about the same sacramental way each morning. You brush your teeth in the same way. You know, you have this habit, right? Well, what if you shape your life with the daily time with the Lord? Well, that's the next step. So if you don't know what to do next, join us every morning in prayer and scripture reading. All right, the next step, of course, is easy. Uh, this is the third step in discipleship, which is connecting with other believers. Connecting with other believers. Now, we offer a bunch of ways to do that. I mean, in my dream world, I could wave a magic wand, you know, and, you know, everybody in our church would be in a discipleship group, a, a small group of believers. Uh, we're far from that, but we'll get there eventually, uh, by God's grace. But also, during Advent right now, for the next four weeks, um, we have a really beautiful sanctuary, uh, don't you think, uh, to be inviting your friends and family to. And then there's a bunch of really cool opportunities this Advent season to be connecting with other people. So uh, we'd love for you to come back next Sunday and watch our kids. And uh, isn't that a beautiful Christmas tree outside? Can't you, you see that? Um, a bunch of people worked really hard um, to decorate this uh, and be out there in the courtyard. 
It's a wonderful opportunity, right, to connect with other believers. Think about bringing somebody with you. Uh, then the other way I would say to connect maybe during this Advent season, besides, you know, all the church events, uh, is think of, just think about how much Jesus uses tables for a second. I mean, uh, it, next Lent, we're going to do a series called Meals with Jesus. And uh, it's really fascinating if you were to do a biblical theology of food, right? If you were to trace how God thinks about food. Because what is, what is man's first job? What, what do Adam and Eve do? They are what? Naked gardeners, yes. They would fit in the Applegate Valley really well, right? They were naked gardeners. And gardeners, they have a garden. And a garden means what? Food. And food means what? A table. And a table means what? Belonging. Right? And beholding. And then all throughout the Old Testament, God designs the whole calendar around feasts. And he designs the Passover meal around a table with families to build community. And then when God meets his people on Mount Sinai, there's this strange little story that we often forget, which is Moses and the 70 elders join him on the mountain and they eat and drink and behold God. Or you think about Melchizedek, that strange priest. He comes and he meets Abraham and he's carrying what in his hands? Bread and wine. And then if you go through the New Testament, Jesus is always eating with people. You know, he offends people with whom he's willing to share a meal with. Who does he eat meals with? Tax collectors, sinners, women of the night. And then, of course, after the resurrection, what does Jesus do? He eats broiled fish. Why? Because food means belonging, and it means fellowship. It means connecting. So, a Christian, your next step in discipleship is to take seriously. Jesus says, don't just throw parties for your friends. They'll just invite you back. Invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, people who can never pay you back. Then you'll be living like that alternative community, shining light in a dark world. Who has God called you to maybe invite to your dinner table this Advent? Step four is serving. Uh, Joy already mentioned this in the announcements. If you look in the bulletin, uh, there's a bunch of uh, area partners uh, that we can partner with uh, during Advent that needs service. Uh, so you have a heart for serving people, uh, please fill that out. Um, also, for all the deacons in the room, thank you so much for serving us and working so hard yesterday to make a beautiful sanctuary. If you see a deacon, thank a deacon. I should get a little button that says that. <laughs> thank it. If you see a deacon, thank a deacon. You know, uh, pushing forward, I know our time's up. Reaching, what do we mean by reaching? Well, there's never a moment in your walk with Jesus uh, where you are actively trying to share your faith with somebody where your faith is weakening. Let me say that a different way. No matter what else is going on in your life, if there is a person that you are intentionally meeting with or trying to share the gospel with, you will always have a flame of faith burning hot within you. And you know why? Because you are designed to evangelize. Friends, you are the light of the world. That doesn't just mean all the extroverts have to do all the work. It means y'all, all of us, are the light of the world. 
we're all share, we're called to share the gospel with somebody. And Advent is such a perfect season. Have you ever shot fish in a barrel? You can this Advent. It is so easy. Hey, you want to come to church with me? <gasps> yeah, maybe. Bring somebody to church with you. Ask to read the Bible with them. I guarantee you there will be so much blessing if you were to challenge somebody you know to read the Bible with you. Just say, hey, are you a Christian? You don't seem like it. No, don't say that. That's terrible. <laughs> it's bad evangelism. Hey, let's read the Bible. Read the Gospel of John with somebody. Reach out. Lastly, the sixth and final step uh, I think that we're all called to make Right? Now, you're not, you're not, the point is not to do all of these things all of the time, right? The point is, which one are you called to take next? What's your next step? Do you need to get better teaching? Do you need to do the devotional time? Do you need to reach out to somebody? Well, the final step is living generously. And generosity is just the mark of somebody who's deeply grateful for what God has been generous towards them with, right? God's generosity, giving his own son, makes us generous people. And generosity doesn't just mean, you know, tithing to the church. Generosity is a way of life where you are generous with your words. You are generous with your encouragement. You are generous with your time and your talent and your treasure. It's a way of life that is an alternative way of life. It's the Jesus way to be generous, right? And if you ever to wonder, well, what is generosity? You should do it till it hurts. Anybody here go to the gym Thank goodness, me neither. <laughs> Going to the gym, are you kidding me? I work out my brain muscle. Is my brain a muscle? Lord have mercy. Right? Why do you go to the gym? To work out muscles, right? So that it becomes sort of second nature, right? So that you can keep doing more and more. It's a way of life. Well, generosity is like a muscle that we have to be exercising constantly, not just for the sake of big muscles, because it's a healthy way of life. So how can you be generous? Let me just finish with this. If you look in your bulletin, one easy way to be generous, if you're saying, well, how can I be generous? Well, uh, contact Scott, learn to serve uh, somewhere in one of our ministry partners, or buy some of these lamplighter gifts for kids in need. So we have about, uh, I think we had, what, about 100 gifts? Is that what we said? We have about 180 gifts we want to give out this Advent, and we're about halfway there. And the way that the mission team sort of came up with this was we were trying to decide who are the groups of people that God has uniquely called us to serve and be generous towards. And so one of those obvious groups are the Almeida Fire survivors, right? And so we've been given a lot of gifts to those uh, kids of those survivors. Another is families affected by disabilities. Another group is foster families. And then if you don't know this, um, several guys in our church go to the Supermax prison in California, Pelican Bay, twice a month. And uh, if you ever want to hear incredible stories of gospel transformation, talk to John Esser sometime about the work that the Lord is doing in that Supermax California prison. But the opportunity that we have is to buy gifts for those men's children. Those children are now living without their fathers, and now we have the opportunity to bless them. So, uh, I, you know, there, there's an easy one, right? If you want to learn to be more generous, well, it's right there in your lap. And I will just say one more thing. If you do this and you have kids, do it with your kids and let them choose with you which gift to give, and then 
and then make them pitch in financially. Right? If they've got five bucks, they need to pitch in 50 cents. You know why? How do kids learn? How do kids learn? Immersion and imitation. How do you learn? Immersion and imitation. So, let me just do one, just one more thing. It's trivia. You'll love it. Who's the light of the world? What was that? No, you're not. The audacity. Jesus is the light of the world, you heathens. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Jesus is the light of the world, but so are we. How does that work? By way of analogy, does the sun shine at night? Well, okay, science geeks. But does it? No. The sun is down during the night. So what does shine at night? The moon. Does the moon create its own light? No, the moon reflects the light of the sun onto a dark world. Now, does the moon always, always, always shine with the same brightness? How many phases of the moon are there? Anybody know? You know how like the moon has different phases? How many are there? There are eight phases. Eight phases of the moon, right? There's new, waxing, gibbous, all that fun stuff. But the point is, the moon reflects the light of the sun onto a dark world, and sometimes it's brighter, and then sometimes it's less bright, and then sometimes clouds obscure it. So if you are like the moon, called to reflect the light of the sun onto a dark world, my last trivia question what phase are you in? And how do you make the next step to grow just a little brighter? Let's pray. Now, Father, thank you that you light the way back to home. And Father, we praise you that you sent your son Jesus to be the light of the world. Now, Lord, would we reflect his light and the glory of the gospel into our dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.